0: They Blamed Video Games by E. A. Frerking At approximately 9.33 a.m. on March 9, 2005, Ohio Senator Lewis White was attending a career day at Gene Miller Elementary School. At that time, he was focused on giving a presentation on his job as a politician to the students, and he had no idea of the tragedy that was to occur. The disaster seems to have fallen into place all too perfectly. As seven-year-old Tommy Brooks was in the first grade, he had been sitting very close to the stage. As all the students had been rushed into the auditorium upon their arrival to school, he also had his backpack with him. In it was the pistol he had taken from home. Senator White had only been on stage for nine seconds before Tommy pulled out his gun and shot him. The bullet landed right in the senator's jaw and exited through the senator's skull. Not only did this cause White's face to be ripped apart, but it also caused a splatter of blood, skull, and brains to splash the projection screen behind him. All was silent for the first few seconds as the gravity of the situation sank in. Then came the chaos. Children began screaming. Adults gasped and immediately began rushing the children away from the scene. Some children and adults were trampled, but luckily, none were killed. And Brooks was luckily subdued by two teachers who had seen him perform his deadly deed. The papers were more than happy to report the story with a sensationalist headline. Seven-year-old student shoots the state senator. The blame was, of course, placed on violent video games. Investigations concluded that the boy played them a lot more than most kids his age, after all. It seemed like an open and shut case. Then, the boy's father began speaking out on Twitter. Tweets upon tweets piled on top of each other. The image that it painted of the father and his son was haunting. Mr. Brooks bragged about how he had essentially made his son into a killer by teaching him how to use a gun. He commended him for killing the state senator that he had told the boy he hated. Apparently, all that Brooks wanted to do was impress his father. What was actually in the old house by E. A. Frereking. No matter if it did or didn't deserve it, the house at the end of Fifth Street was destined to become a thing of supernatural legend. It had all the classical makings of a haunted house. Its style was Victorian. It was in a state of significant decay. The fact that a terrible murder had taken place there was just a point on the witch's hat. Those days, no matter which local one talked to, all of them seemed to know at least one story about the house. The most popular was the one about the ghost of an old woman being seen in the window. Another one spoke about a family who had lived there and had been scared away, and sometimes one could hear about the statues in the courtyard getting up and dancing about. But, as far as my friends and I knew, no one had actually been inside the place since it's shuddering. With all the rot, number of pests, and other such things which had built up inside it, it had probably become too dangerous. Of course, as in love as we were with ghosts and all matters of paranormal subjects, these things were the least possible things we believed the house could be filled with. Instead, in our minds and discussions, we filled the house with all kinds of ghosts, monsters, and aliens, and for a long while these imaginings were enough to keep us satisfied. Eventually, however, our curiosity about the place became too strong. Without asking our parents for permission, we snuck out one night and met in front of the house. Using a crowbar, we quickly made our way inside. Eagerly, we ducked and scurried among the old furnishings and up and down the stairs and into all the rooms. Our taunts shrieks, and poundings echoed off the old walls as we attempted to draw out whatever creatures lurked in the place. But... Once we had run out of energy and breath, we settled down and realized just how quiet the place was. We glanced at each other nervously, and began discussing the possibility that there was nothing there. Someone suggested that maybe the horrors just weren't interested in us that night. But, as heartbreaking as it was, most of us believed that there was nothing in the house, and, most dismally, a few of us questioned if the paranormal existed at all. Paintings over people by E.A. Frerking So I don't know if you guys have seen this video or not. It went kind of viral like a few weeks back. This scene is all shot, you know, from the viewpoint of a potato quality security camera. You got this guy, this black guy in a striped polo shirt and khaki pants, hanging out at an art museum. He might be there for a school assignment. He might be there just because he likes art. No one really knows. The news wasn't clear on that one. Of course it wasn't. Anyways, we see him walk up to this abstract painting. It just has this white background, which is mostly crowded out by all these gold and silver shapes. I mean, like... Squares, circles, lines, triangles, and stuff. I'm sure you guys basically know the kind of painting I'm talking about. It's likely something that was created solely for the purposes of tax evasion. And so this guy stands and stares at this painting for a few moments, as one does in an art museum. He takes his cell phone out and probably snaps a few pics, or maybe he's taking a video. Both are usually allowed in an art museum. You just can't use the flash. Then this guy turns around and puts his face in front of the camera, taking selfies, like, probably. He's probably also making funny faces. Again, that's, that's also allowed. It might be annoying, but it's allowed. And as he's doing that, well... As he's doing that, this lady with a big hat, fur wrap, and long dress just storms over and straight up pushes him. Seriously. I don't know what the heck this lady's problem was. Maybe she just thought that his selfieing was disrespectful to the art. Maybe she mistook him for her ex. Maybe she just didn't like the fact that this guy was in the art museum. Or she was just racist. Again, the news wasn't clear on that one. Of course it wasn't. Whatever the reason, this poor guy loses his balance and falls back. His arms are swinging wildly as he tries to catch himself. And his left hand ends up going through the painting, and as he continues to fall, it tears this huge chunk before it gets to the frame. Other museum guests start staring and crowding around the scene. Slowly, the guy takes his hand off the frame. Then he joins it with his other hand on his face and just crumples into a ball. And that was the last shot in knowledge that we were left with at the time. We didn't get anything else. There was no news on if the guy was punished or if the lady was punished. I mean, I'm sure you guys want to believe that the guy's okay, right? Or maybe you don't. I don't know. Either way, we actually got a follow-up on the story yesterday. Not that most of the internet would know. Or maybe the politicians' media law didn't want you to know. Ooh, conspiracy or whatever. In actuality, it's probably just people moving on to the next thing and not thinking about what happened to this guy. Anyways, it seems that the guy was found not guilty, at least. But there's an article that one of the jurors wrote about the trial that is just really eye-opening. There's this one piece of imagery in particular that she describes. We've got the guy sitting on the defense side in this really ragged suit. It was apparently the only really nice clothes that this guy could find. His hands aren't in cuffs, but there's this big-ass guard standing next to him. "'Occasionally, the juror says that she could see the guard "'put his hand on the guy's shoulder and squeeze it roughly. "'Then we've got the painting. "'It wasn't there the whole time. "'The offense just brought it in as an exhibit. "'But, man, did it get the royal treatment. Two guys slowly, carefully carried the painting in. "'Everyone within two feet of it backed up. "'They gently set it on the easel. This was somewhat difficult, because it was still in its gilded frame. And as the art expert explained the significance of the painting, he gently slipped his hand under the torn strip. He held it there for a few minutes, as if the strip were the arm of a beautiful woman in distress. But it clearly wasn't. Childhood Corruption by E. A. Frerking Mrs. Peterson had never seen or heard her child in such a state before. For most of his life, he had been a quiet, shy, and well-behaved child. Even his terrible twos had been without incident. That changed starting at the age of four. Starting this year, the child became a violent demon. He refused to eat his vegetables to the point of not eating for days on end in protest. He wouldn't share his toys with his younger sister and beat her savagely when she wouldn't give things up. And worst of all, it took a lot of time to coax him into obeying his parents' demands. Obviously, this couldn't be tolerated. Timeouts and other punishments were implemented. A therapist was employed. And while the effects of these were being seen, Mr. and Mrs. Peterson turned their attention to the media that their child was consuming. Most video games and TV shows that featured any kind of violence or dark themes were banned. Friends were kept away from the house in different shifts to see if there was a change in behavior. And while these measures did improve the child's behavior slightly, it wasn't to the level that was wanted. The number of attacks had died down, but there were still a good number of severe ones. And the age of five was approaching fast. How could they ever get him into school? Then one day the source was realized. On a normal day, Mrs. Peterson was making her children a meal. The two of them were watching television. The show that they were watching was, she thought, entirely appropriate. The reviews had recommended it as the perfect show for young children. Yet, during this particular episode, Mrs. Peterson heard screaming. She looked up, expecting to see her child throwing a fit. This was not the case, however. The main character, a child her son's age, was the one throwing a fit, and it was just as violent as the ones her son had thrown. Nothing was safe. A pseudo-celebrity is ripped apart by E. A. Frerking My friends and I used to think that celebrities had the best kind of life, How could we not? All that we were ever told and showed about celebrities seemed to back this claim. They had the most beautiful skin, hair, and bodies. All around them were the trappings of luxury, cars, clothes, and mansions. Members of the opposite sex fought each other to be with them, and even when they fell into tragedy, it never seemed as bad as it could be with a non celebrity. And with all our love of celebrities, Of course, we would both want to become like them and try to do so, but we knew very well that fame doesn't appear from nothing. As we weren't rich or hot, we knew that our fame had to come from some form of art. So we all tried our hands at different kinds of stuff. We tried drawing, music, writing, and so on. When those didn't pan out, we went into making YouTube videos. On those, we tried making comedy skits, doing commentary, and filming ourselves gaming, but all of these seemed like too much work. So we then went into prank videos, but at first, we couldn't decide on which prank to pull, which rushed through hours of content for ideas. Then one of us, I can't remember quite who, came across the so-called fake celebrity prank. He showed this to all of us. The fake celebrity prank went like this. One person would dress up as a celebrity, and two people would dress as bodyguards. Then they would walk together in some public place. Supposedly, people would believe that they were a celebrity and act as such. It seemed perfect to celebrity lovers such as us, so we started planning the prank out. We bought the suits and glasses for the bodyguards. We chose an outfit out of all the clothes in our wardrobes, which looked celebrity enough. A location in the downtown local area of our city was decided upon. Then it came time to assign the roles. Unfortunately, we all fought over who would get to be the celebrity. It came down to playing rock-paper-scissors, but after this was settled, everyone volunteered to be the bodyguards and camera operators without issue. At first, the prank went well. Some people took photos and chatted amongst themselves, trying to figure out who the celebrity was. Then they got excited and tried to get closer looks. And the people doing this quickly surrounded my friends in a swarm. They screamed and reached for the celebrity. The bodyguard acting friends tried to fight them back, but they were soon overwhelmed. The fans latched on to my friend. First they tore apart his clothes and ran away with pieces of them. Then they got to his limbs. I saw the muscle and sinew rip as his arms were pulled away. Even after his limbs were gone, few were still trying to pull at his hair. Everything only stopped when people realized what they had done and ran. I had already called 911, but it was already too late to do much of anything except make him comfortable before death. The police arrested a few people, but no one was ever charged. I suppose they were not guilty by insanity. Still, needless to say, we don't worship celebrities anymore. I was about to buy my five-year-old son a green, as he called it, princess dress, and I thought that I could prepare him for all possible consequences. Right in the middle of the store, I knelt down in front of him, grasped him by the shoulders, looked him straight in the eyes and mentioned every single situation that I could imagine. I told him that grown-ups and other kids might stare at, make fun of, stay away from, stop talking to, and even hurt him. The dress could also be damaged. It might be tugged, ripped, stained, pulled off, and even stolen from him. Once I finished, I asked him if he still wanted the dress. Then I added that I would love him no matter what he chose. He still wanted it. In fact, he was so excited that he could dress up like a princess that he wanted to put it on right there and then. I laughed at his eagerness and said that he could after I bought it. Once I gave the all clear at the checkout counter, he began running towards the men's dressing room. The green dress trailed behind him as he ran, looking very much like a flag. I grabbed the other things I had bought and followed close behind. All the while, I was calling asking him to wait for me. He was darting between the clothing racks. I held my breath as each shopper that he passed turned to look at him. A thousand scenarios appeared in my mind as to what they might say or do to him. I thought of them yanking the dress from his hands, tripping him, hitting him, asking what the hell he was doing, and screaming insults at him. I mentally prepared myself to deal with each possible situation. Ideally, I would keep a calm mind, talk to, not shout at, any attackers, and only fight them physically if absolutely necessary. But as we went, the shopper seemed to turn away without any trouble. For each one that did, I felt an insane amount of relief. Soon, we were almost in the dressing room. Bang! Bang! I heard the gunfire, raced over to my son, scooped him up, and ran into the dressing room. For a few moments, I sat there breathing heavily. The noise around me was muffled. Then I peeked around the corner. Two retail workers were holding the arms of a tall male figure in a hoodie and a baseball cap as he fought them and yelled statements sprinkled with homosexual slurs. There was a black shape on the floor which I assumed was a gun. My eyes widened and my body began shaking. This was beyond anything that I had considered. Had this man actually fired a gun at a five-year-old child? I turned to look at my son. His face was frozen in an expression of shock. I couldn't see any of his injury on his head, arms, or legs, but the right side of his jacket covered his chest and stomach. If he had been injured there, I couldn't see it. Closing my eyes and mentally bracing myself for the worst, I flipped over that side of his jacket. All that I saw was his green shirt. There was no wound and no blood. The man had missed. I gave what probably was the biggest sigh of relief in my life. I pulled my son in as close to me as possible and cried tears of joy. The police arrived later and, after I answered their questions, weren't able to answer my own. I had to wait until the media picked it up and investigated to learn the full story. As it turned out, the man had been investigated for violence against the LGBT community before. He hasn't been charged with anything as of writing this story, but I haven't been thinking about that. My thoughts have been focused on other implications of this event. If there was one scenario which I couldn't imagine, it's entirely possible that there could be others, and there was no possible way that I could prepare my son for all of them. Despite the trauma, my son still insists on wearing the dress. I'm starting to wonder if I should ban him from doing so. I really don't want to be that parent, but it may be the only way I have to protect him.